but there has to be that time in your life where you you practice for eight hours a day you know just i think i do think that has to happen at some point um but like you say it's 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 getting somebody to a point where the love of it and the excitement of it negates the time that goes into it and actually you know if you're practicing properly and you're inspired eight hours disappears warning this episode contains adult language and adult humor since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults if you are easily offended by these types of conversations consider switching to the oboe welcome to the trumpet guru saying podcast i'm your host jose johnson my guest for this episode is ryan quigley ryan is the perfect representative of the amazing london trumpet scene equally at home blowing through complex changes with his jazz chops or blowing down the walls with his powerful lead chops ryan is a beast on the bandstand and your best mate at the pub he's thoughtful funny and one of the finest all-around trumpet players that you'll find so pour yourself a big glass pull up a chair and let the hang begin Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. And I am joined all the way from uh, Scotland. Yes. Well, I'm Scottish, but I live in England. Oh, in England. Well, in yeah. England. I'm joined yeah. from, from England. I'm kind, of, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of part of the London scene, but I live kind of a bit outside London in the country. So. Oh, okay. Well, that was my mistake. So uh, we're joined uh, from uh, London. Uh, we're joined by um, Mr. Ryan Quigley. Ryan, it is a pleasure to get to to meet you and to know you. So, folks, this is a real life hang. You know, this is uh, this is the essence of what we try to do with the hang. Um, it's to get to know other people. And uh, you know, uh, Ryan and I have never met. We uh, were connected by a mutual friend. I'm going to say friend because I'm going to assume that that he doesn't owe you money or anything like that. <laughs> No, and I don't owe him money either. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, by by uh, by my my good friend and uh, and show sponsor, uh, Mr. Uh, Michael Barkley of Barkley yeah. Microphones, uh, who is also a phenomenal trumpet player. Um, so uh, Michael uh, hooked us up, and this is this is going to be a real life hang. This is going to be us getting to know each other uh, and and you joining in on the process. So so Ryan, uh, once again, thanks a lot. And I just want to start out with with uh, this question for you because. You know, here, I'm in the United States, and this is one of the powers of the podcast. You know, we've got listeners in, I think last time I checked, 24 countries uh, that that are listening and and watching this podcast. Um, And sometimes it's it's really kind of, uh, you can't see outside of your own environment, you know. So you you know the people in, in your local scene or you know the people in your country scene. But when we start to get outside of that, we kind of lose track of stuff. And it seems to me uh, over the past few years, especially doing this podcast, that, man, the trumpet scene in, in Europe is blowing up. The players in, uh, in England, in uh, Ireland, in Scotland, you know, that area, I mean, you guys are just cranking out some huge talents. Um, so... What is it that is is developing this level of versatility? I mean, it's not just lead players; it's jazz players, it's classical players. I mean, it's like, and, and everybody can seem to, to play everything really well. So, so what's going on in the scene over there that that's turning out these prodigious talents? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've I've certainly noticed that I'm kind of like mid forties now, um, so I kind of certainly grew up when I first started playing. There was no internet, for instance. I think that's been a big game changer for the industry as a whole. Um, but I think I definitely think music education's probably got quite a lot to do with it as well. Um, so I think you know you've got some jazz courses. I, I, I can certainly only talk maybe from a kind of UK Ireland perspective. Um, although you know done done a fair amount in Europe um um but i think you know the the advent of uh music education establishments and you know some really great jazz courses with some really great people teaching on those courses i think has had a lot to do with it um i also think that there's always been a real appetite for jazz certainly um and you know o- over this side of the the pond you know right back to the start of jazz it was always kind of like it sparked the imagination of everyone so i think um, we've all we've always certainly looked to America as the kind of benchmark of all things, you know, certainly from a jazz perspective, all things jazz, all things lead trumpet. Um, so I guess I, I, just the inspiration of that um, has just always kind of fed through. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's just there's been a real um, surge in interest. Um, I think probably due to the. Um, the education side of it and the kind of the internet side of it and people being able to you know the world becoming much smaller you know um so i I guess that's my take on that i think Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean uh, there uh, i I was lucky enough to be able to uh, interview earlier in this series uh tom walsh Um, yes great great guy great player great arranger and because of Tom, I kind of started to get turned on to a lot of the other cats in that scene. And it's every time I listen to something, I'm like, holy cow, <laughs> you guys are just just crushing it over there. Um, there seems to be so many projects that are going on there. And there seems to be actually a whole lot of opportunity to um, to perform there. There seems to be a lot of cool clubs and, and, and think, well, I mean, obviously with, with COVID that kind of screwed the pooch for everybody, but uh, it seems that in general, that, that the music scene in uh, particularly in like in the London music scene is just really, really happening. So uh, like how long has that been going on? And, and, and am, am I correct in my observation of that? Yeah, I, I, th- I, I would definitely say you are. I mean, it's always felt like it's been quite a healthy music scene um you know i I grew up playing um music in in scotland you know i grew up in glasgow i was i'm actually irish i was born in ireland uh, but i grew up in glasgow um and uh yeah so i grew up playing on the kind of scottish music scene and it was an unbelievably vibrant scene um you know when i first started out i was playing in you know, I was playing in function bands. I was playing in, I had a little, a uh, couple of jazz residencies and a couple of bars. Um, there was also the kind of emergence of an, an incredible um, Latin American music scene. Um, so when I was, you know, early 20s, um, I had great opportunities to play with um, some really great Cuban musicians and, you know, other uh, South American musicians, some Brazilian musicians, um, you know, so that, that was an unbelievable experience. And there was a real explosion of kind of like, people wanting to learn how to salsa dance and all that sort of stuff. So there was all these clubs popping up. Plus there was the kind of late night funk gigs and nightclubs. So it was like, it was just an incredibly vibrant time, you know, in the kind of nineties, early two thousands, certainly in kind of Glasgow, Edinburgh, um, and kind of all over Scotland, really, there was a really, you know, amazingly vibrant, exciting, 
um, music scene with you know you know getting to meet lots of people that played lots of different instruments and different styles of music you know because when I first um, started playing it was very much you know jazz classical you know quite a bit tunnel visioned I guess and then I kind of got opened up to a lot of things you know um, but then you know as I got a bit older and started you know playing with different bands and kind of touring with my own you know jazz group or you know being a sideman and other people's side group uh, and sideman and other people's groups um going around the country going to places like london and birmingham and manchester and you know um cardiff and you know leeds you know the the result that every every city seemed to have its own scene uh, that seemed to be really healthy there was all these young cats playing you know learning the music um and like yeah like i say every every, every scene seemed to have this kind of um hunger for wanting to learn you know the music and jazz and um and it's it's just it's it's been a really amazing thing to watch over the last oh god i'm getting old now like 20 years you know um so yeah it's 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 interesting because in the 90s over here the kind of 80s and 90s there was lots of um exposure for jazz on mainstream media so there was television shows Mm -hmm. you know i used to watch there was a kind of there was uh, jazz at the 606. 606 is a great club in London. And they had a jazz series for a couple of years uh, back in the 90s. Um, there was lots of jazz programs on and they seem to have gone. You know, the people that seem to now be in charge of what goes on mainstream television, they don't seem to be jazz fans at all. In fact, they actively don't like it. You know, I've heard people saying to me at jazz festivals, you know, do we need to use the word jazz? And it's like, yeah, you can't be don't be apologetic for this music. It's it's the most amazing art form, arguably the best form of music. You know, you could argue that case. So yeah. don't diminish it by saying, oh, if it says jazz, people won't want to come. Because actually, now that it's not kind of in the mainstream kind of consciousness over here, it, to me, it almost feels like it's gone a bit underground and has become more hip because of that again. Right. In a right. funny sort of way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, we have a lot of jazz. Well, we don't have a lot. It, it, it seems like, you know, some of the biggest and most famous jazz festivals actually are in Europe, you know. But, uh, you know, we we do have a number of jazz festivals here. Um, and what's kind of, I was having this conversation with uh, a sax player that I work with recently. And we're talking about uh, the, the uh, jazz festival, which unfortunately just got canceled uh, down in New Orleans. And when you looked at the lineup, there really weren't that many jazz artists on it. I mean, they still use the, the, the word jazz to, to promote it, but it was mostly pop and rock artists. And you know, it's like, wow, it, it's so funny that, that jazz has this very kind of bizarre connotation, I think, with some people. And it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of hip, but, you know. We want to say we're going to a jazz festival, but, but we really don't want to hear jazz. We want, <laughs> we want to hear something else. Yeah. So, but um, it, it seems like uh, it's like here they want to use the word jazz, but they don't want to play jazz. And it sounds like over there they want to they want to play jazz, but they don't want to hear the word jazz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, do you know what, man? Um, are you like to swear on this podcast, by the way? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Do you know, it really, it really pisses me off that that um, that thing where you get a jazz festival, um, and I'll probably, you know, I'll probably do myself out of gigs here by saying this, but 
you know, you, you look at a jazz festival, I won't name any festival in particular, but like you say, there's so many bands that just, they are not jazz groups, you know, they're rock groups or they're big famous, you know, I guess North Sea Jazz Festival is quite a good example of that, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, they've got the big jazz acts and all that, but the biggest acts that they put on are, you know, I think Prince has played there, you know, Stevie Wonder, you know, all the Earth, Wind and Fire, um, yeah. you know, some like heavy metal groups. It's like, as great as these are, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm the biggest Stevie Wonder fan in the world. Uh, yeah. And there's definitely elements of what he does as jazz influenced. Uh, but, you know, the, I think the year that I saw, I was playing there one year with somebody and the, the year that he was there, um, Chris Potter was playing in some tiny little room at the same time. It's like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 I think, you know, from, from a promoter's perspective, I get it. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, you know, it's like, okay, I've got to, you know, I've got to spend, you know, I don't know, uh, a half a million pounds or whatever uh, to, uh, to put this thing on. This is my, this is my exposure. And I can certainly have, you know, Chris Potter, or I could have, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, somebody else, you know, that, that's a great player uh, come over and I might sell, you know, 10,000, 10, you know, worth of, worth of tickets, uh, you know, but if I, if I bring in Metallica, I'm going to make, you know, I'm, I'm going to sell out. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a, that's bizarre kind of thing. Uh, you know, no, it, no, don't, 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 don't run a jazz festival then. Surely there's a way to kind of be pure to the music and build yeah. the, keep building the audience again, you know, because it used to be one of the most popular things in the world and and i think in some countries you know you still will sell thousands of tickets and there's certain artists that you know you will will still always sell tickets like pat metheny will always yeah. sell thousands of tickets you know yeah and um, i just think if things are promoted in the right way and kind of given the right exposure people will come there's a there's a hunger for it and i'm yeah. seeing it when i when i go and do jazz gigs in various places around the country the audiences are getting younger uh-huh. You know, it's not like it's not like this these old dying audience there are there are young kids who want to hear this music and if it was given the right proper kind of like made you know mainstream exposure more people would come i i'm sure i'm sure of it you know but there's not the appetite in the kind of quote unquote industry to do that for some reason yeah well you know i was recently having a conversation with harry kim um on this podcast and harry was talking a little bit about um jazz and how at some point it kind of at least here in the states it got uh it got too cool for itself you know it kind of got uh it got too elitist and so that that turn that sort of turned the, the average listener off because you know jazz was the pop music of its day yeah you know and um you know that's the thing about popular music is that it's kind of interesting how those cycles work, but you know, if you want to, if you want to be popular, that means that there has to be a combination of, uh, you know, doing your art, you know, producing what you know, your creativity, but it also means that it has to be done in a way that uh, appeals to the populace. It, it has to sure. be, you know, and and um, that requires a level of uh compromise in some ways i hate to use that word because it has such a, a bad connotation but you have to understand what people are looking for and are, are finding enjoyable and then find a way to present 
your ideas in a way that that's going to resonate with them. And I think sometimes we get stuck in that. Well, you know, like, uh, well, yeah, if it's not hard bop, it's crap. You know, if it's, if it's, if it's not, you know, you know, it, it, you know, I, if I, if I can't play an odd time signatures, uh, then, you know, then, then why am I playing this music? You know, I'm not going to lower my standards. And I think sometimes we miss out on the, the opportunity to reach a new audience because we get so stuck in trying to be purist in what yeah. we do. Man, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, I, you know, I kind of draw a little bit of a parallel with contemporary classical music. Mm -hmm. You know, like classical music is obviously such a big art form and it's so popular. But yeah, it's so backed by, you know, the media and all the rest of it. Certainly over here, I don't know what it's like in America, but certainly over in the UK, um, classical music, you know, we've got the proms, we've got Radio 3, we've got Classic FM. You know, it's very present in people's minds. But nobody wants to listen to contemporary classical music because it's bullshit most of it you know it's yeah. like who's gonna want to listen to that you know you know you know we're having dinner sweetheart put on that steve reich record said nobody you know, <laughs> Do you know what i mean um but you know i think you're right it's like you can still have the art form but if it's kind of massaged in with the kind of you know we're seeing this from your point of view as the listener as well we're going to push the boundaries but we're going to bring you along with us away we're going to bring you along the way with us you know that's how you get impact yeah. you know not just like it's art it's uncompromising here you go here's a picture of a line on a wall it's worth a million pounds you yeah. know it's, it's you know it's you know come yeah on. yeah we're human beings we need things we need melody we need to be able to look at a picture and it can be challenging but you need to be able to see something in it you know you need to be able to hear some kind of melody you need to you know that's yeah I, yeah. I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm probably going to upset uh, at least half of my audience with this statement. Um, one of my favorite trumpet players uh, currently uh, is Chris Bodie. A lot of people hate Chris. And I have my theories on why they hate Chris. And uh, I think the biggest reason that, that most people don't like Chris is they because he's successful. He's commercially successful, and they, they label him a sell, sellout. But here's what I'll say about Chris. Um, Chris is a beast of a player. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he really is. <laughs> the, the guy, he's got chops. He's got, I mean, he's got, like, high chops. He's got jazz chops. He just chooses, you know, he chooses yeah. to go with that, that you know, kind of diffuse sound because that fits the genre he's, he's going for. But the thing that I love about Chris, because I've seen him live a number of times, is, you know, you listen to his recordings and they're, you know, nice, melodic, good sound, things like that. You know, the, the things that, uh, that appeal to the average listener. But you go to hear him in a show and he starts to stretch it. I mean, I remember once I'm like, holy crap, is that, is that Woody Shaw on stage? I mean, he, he, was, wow. he was bopping hard and he was going outside and he, he stuck it in on one of his really popular tunes. And, you know, it, that, like you were saying, it's like a way of massaging in, like, okay, if you like this, this becomes almost like a gateway drug. You know, it's like, if you like this, then come to my live show. And then you start to get exposed to these, you know, more complex uh, approaches to jazz, which then hopefully will lead you into a further discovery of of what uh you know jazz playing and especially jazz trumpet is so um 
you know, I think that, that there's a huge lesson to be learned from that. I mean, not, every, not everybody has to go that route, but, you know, even players that, that like, particularly like um, in the commercial sense, like that guys who are, are doing stuff uh, with, um, you know, more pop acts, you know? Um, I mean, I remember the, the first time I heard uh, uh, us threes, uh, ver that, that hip hop version of, uh, yeah, of Ken Loop Island. 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 Yeah. yeah. And, and then um, I heard that trumpet solo on it and I'm like, no, that's yeah. not pretty, but that, that was bad. And so that got me going down that, that route with, with, uh, with uh, Gerard and uh, Jared or Gerald? Gerald? Yeah, Gerard, 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 Gerard Presenzo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, then I got, start, I got turned on to... Um, you know, like guys like Mike Lovett, and you know, uh, you know, other other guys that are that are playing in in the uh, the London music scene. But it was through the pop music that I got turned on to their their jazz stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be said for doing that. So uh, like for you, uh, where where's your heart lie? I mean, what what's what's the thing that that really you know gets you excited about playing? Oh, do you know what that. Again, that's a really great question. And, you know, I did a gig last night um, and it kind of, I've been like, you know, there's been, you know, like everywhere else, we've we've had no work, we've had no gigs, you know. Um, and I've been, I've had a little lucky run of things recently. I've done a few nice gigs um, with a, a Latin jazz, but actually me and two other friends have set up a Latin jazz group because uh, we, we both, we, we both, all three of us both, uh, the three of us um, had a kind of upbringing of playing, you know, Latin jazz music. Um, so we decided to put a band together. So uh, it's me and a sax player and a trombone player. Um, and uh, it's a band called Triple, um, spelled T-R-Y-P-L, because it's Trevor, Ryan and Paul. So that's where the name comes from. And there's three of us. Anyway, um, I digress. We've, we've, we did three gigs over three weeks recently. We did the Jazz Cafe in London. Uh, we did a gig in Ronnie Scott's uh, two weeks ago, um, which both of them were totally sold out, which was really incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And the the audiences have started, you know, being allowed to come into the venues again. Um, and we did a gig last night um, in uh, a place called Norfolk, which is far away from everywhere in the UK. It's just miles away. <laughs> One of those places, you know, yeah. wherever you are and wherever you are, it takes forever to get there. Yeah. Um, and again, it was a great audience. Um, and also... I've been doing some, you know, some session stuff, um, and, you know, going into like Abbey Roads and going into, you know, doing some home session stuff. Um, and I did a gig with like a, a symphony orchestra a couple of weeks ago and they're all really different things. And the thing that struck me last night, for some reason, it just, it just hit me. I just love playing the trumpet. Like I just love playing the trumpet. It doesn't matter whether it's a lead chart uh, it doesn't matter if it's a Latin jazz group. Doesn't matter if it's my own original jazz stuff. Doesn't matter if it's me being a sideman. Doesn't matter if I'm sitting in a recording studio, you know, trying to play whatever. Um, like when I'm actually playing the trumpet, I ju I just love playing the trumpet. Um, I I guess I started off um, as a jazz player. Uh, my dad was a trumpet player. Uh, he was a jazz player, so he started the the love of music and the love of playing the trumpet. In me and growing up, I had a really amazing listening kind of um, education from him. Um, you know, so like one one of the first things uh, that really turned me on to the trumpet. You might laugh, 
um, was uh, Herb Alpert. Um, so his Tijuana Brasta. Um, yeah. that, that, that was like the first thing that I heard. And I was just, I was so young, but there was something about it that just really, just really moved me. Um, I remember Lonely Bull was like, yeah. I just had, I just played it on, I've, I've got the vinyl somewhere, you know, I just played it all the time, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and then, you know, he, you know, he would let me hear, you know, um, the, the way he sat down and listened to music with me was amazing as well, because he was like uh, the other amazing record that really kind of sparked my kind of jazz interest was uh, the foreign more record, Miles Davis. Um, mm-hmm. where you know the first track's My Funny Valentine and it's the most right. vibey unbelievable version but my dad would like sit me down and say you know check out what Herbie's doing here and then you know when Ron Carter comes in you know he, he was just like it was just holistic kind of thing it wasn't just listening to the trumpet although the trumpet was obviously when you're a kid it's like oh the trumpet's the best thing in the world um, but he really instilled a kind of you know you gotta check out all this other stuff as well right and then he kind of then he kind of turned me on to maynard ferguson and then it was like what the fuck is that <laughs> God, i want to do it. i want to do that as well what's that yeah <laughs> so yeah. i had this kind of but you know so I, my dad was self-taught he kind of started me off and because he was my dad i didn't really want to learn from him so i kind of wanted to do it myself mm-hmm. so he kind of he taught me kind of on the sly without me realizing a lot of things you know mm-hmm. um so i guess i'm mostly self-taught i had a uh, had a trumpet teacher at high school um who was a dixieland trumpet player um so there was nothing chops technique talked about it was all music it was all learn tiger rag learn mahogany hall stomp learn all this stuff so and then he got me sitting in with his dixieland band when i was like 13 14 playing like old you know dixieland tunes and mm-hmm. you know playing tune, playing tunes with singers and funny keys and you know that was an amazing kind of yeah amazing musical kind of like upbringing that i feel really blessed to have had um so yeah i'm rambling now i don't know where i'm going with this but i think that, that i guess my point is whether it was whether it was clifford brown or miles davis or herb alpert or maynard ferguson or cat anderson or freddie hubbard or woody shaw um all of those people were kind of like right here in my consciousness growing up and i never distinguished between them i just thought that's how you play that's how you play that's how you play so I wanted to I didn't think I have to be a jazz player or I have to be a lead trumpet player it was just like you know I want to do all of that yeah why not you know and then one thing that really threw me was my dad said check this guy out and I must have been about I was probably like 14 something like that and he he put on a video of uh, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers um it was live at the Smithsonian with Wynton Marsalis Branford Marsalis and Billy Pierce. Um, and he was like, yeah, check this guy. And he was a young guy, you know, so I could relate to seeing someone playing this music who was young, you right. know, because all these, all these other guys were old or dead. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so there was this young guy. And then he said, now check this out. And it was him playing the Haydn Trumpet Concerto. And I was like, whoa, okay. Now I want to do that. So then I yeah. started checking out classical trumpet, mm-hmm. you know. So eventually <laughs> I ended up going to music music college um in glasgow for a a short time um i went for about a year and a half and then had to leave for lots of reasons which i can tell you about um but uh i i got in doing a classical even though i was very much a jazz guy um i kind of thought right i want to go to music college i want to learn how to do that so i'll do a classical trumpet degree and Mm -hmm. kind of you know practice my ass off and 
you know, learned all these classical things and I, I probably was never very good at it, but it certainly had the interest in it, you know? So, but again, just to go back to my point about four hours ago, <laughs> it was all, to me, it was all just trumpet playing. Right. You know, I just, every, every style that I sit down and play, I just want to play it really well. And I really just love having the trumpet in my hand and just playing. It's my safe space, you know? Yeah. Trumpet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I can absolutely relate to that. I mean, um, I was very much the, the same way with you uh, as the trumpet is a safe, is a safe space. And um, it's just, it, it, it's so much fun, you know, and I, I was explaining to this to someone else that, you know, when I was younger, uh, you know, when I was in a good mood, the first thing I wanted to do when I got home, if I had a great day at school, I wanted to come home and play my trumpet. Um, if I had a bad day, the first thing I wanted to do was come home and play my trumpet because it was, you know, that was just the thing that I would do to, to get into that, that space where, where like, you know, time just kind of disappeared. And, um, and of course I hated practicing I and mean, I just love playing. And, uh, you know, but I think that, you know, you, you said a couple of things that are, that are really kind of critical, I, th I think, and, and I want to kind of circle back on them. Like one thing that you were talking about, it, it's the, you learned by the exposure to the music as opposed to um, the, you know, like the strict theoretical, you know, here's, you know, step-by-step, step, you know, going through the Rubanks methods and, and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it was exposure to the music and it was done in a way, and, and, you know, I have to give props to your, your, your dad on this. It was done in a sneaky way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because it, he, he didn't set, it sounds like he didn't set any expectations or limitations on, on, on the horn. It was, here's what the trumpet can do. Listen to this. Here's how it fits in with other music. Listen to this. It was, it was learning the real skills that you need. You know, certainly you need the technique, but you know, these are the real skills that will keep you engaged and employed in the long runs, you know, your, your ability to, to work in a cohesive unit, your ability to listen, your ability to uh, alter your stylistic interpretations of things. Those are, those are the real skills that a, the, especially a commercial player needs. So, um, I mean, do you, do you feel like, you know, in retrospect, now that you're, you're, you're a, a, a more mature man, uh, if that's possible for a trumpet player to be more mature. Um, I'm, I'm older. I'm not more mature, but I'm older. <laughs> you're older. <laughs> you're a dad now, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so responsibility time. Uh, so um, we'll talk about that later too, you know, yeah, when, yeah, when, when when your your newborn gets a, gets their first trumpet. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, no, but but do you, do you see – as you're looking back, do you see that as um, having influenced your approach to uh, like sharing or teaching or, you know, guiding younger students into to their practice? Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think one thing that I feel very, very strongly about is, is kids having the right kind of positive mentors, you know, in, the, in their lives musically. Um, and, and socially as well, you know, I think it's it's really important that kids aren't, it's not like a kind of dogmatic thing, you know, you must do this, you must do blah, blah, blah. Because like, like you rightly said, there's, 
you know, the technique's important. All these things are really important, but it's how you get them to, and everyone's different. So I don't think there's a one size fits all approach works for education. You know, like some kid might come to you for a lesson and they, they're very much the thing that turns them on is technique and mm-hmm. they love it. And, and then, so you go with that and then somebody else might come to you and the thing that turns them on is, is the latest, you know, whatever snarky puppy album so how do you how do you kind of spark the interest in you know learning the trumpet through that avenue i think it's i think you've got i think you've got a big responsibility i think one has a big responsibility as an educator to kind of look at each individual and kind of tailor what you want to get across to them the way that will be most effective that they will be receptive to um so yeah i think that's really important yeah well and i think that uh you know, when we look at the way that most of us, I mean, I, I've talked to, you know, thousands of trumpet players over the course of my life, obviously, um, and over the past year, you know, with the podcast, talked to a lot of people that I don't think anybody that I've ever talked to said that they started playing trumpet because uh, they wanted to learn music theory. Or because, uh, you know, or, or you know, they, they wanted to be able to play, you know, the entire Clark book. Um, they get into trumpet because, well, either because they're forced to by their parents, which means that they usually don't stick around very long. Um, but but they, they become serious about trumpet because they love it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it seems, it, it yeah, granted, I understand intimately that, there's a price that you pay for mastery and and it's the hard work it's the it's the the grind it's the sweat it's the stuff like that um and you got to be but it's the love that gets you through that because if if you don't have a passion for something when stuff gets tough you're going to quit and it's passion that gets you through so i think it's really i think we kind of do things backwards i think because um I think that educators, regardless of whether you're teaching trumpet or you're teaching science or you're teaching anything else, I think it's important that you do everything you can, particularly at the beginning stages or at those stages where you know there's going to be a drop off, you know, like the the six month, the the one year, the the three year mark, things like that. You've got to do things that instill passion and fire the passion up so that then they have the fuel to get through the arduous work that it takes to get from where they are to where they need to be the next level. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, there definitely, ha- like you say, there has to be that time in your life where you, you practice for eight hours a day, you know, just, I think, I do think that has to happen at some point. Um, but like you say, it's, it's, it's getting somebody to a point where the love of it and the excitement of it negates the time that goes into it. And actually, you know, if you're practicing properly and you're inspired, eight hours disappears. You know, if you if you structure it properly, you know. Um, so yeah, that's it's definitely a skill to be able to kind of I don't know, I think t- teaching teachings it's definitely something I feel very strongly about because I love I love doing it. Um, but I think um you've got to it's not really about giving information, teaching you know, like dogma, all the rest of it. It's about, it's about, it's about making someone discover how they learn and then giving them the tools so that they know how to teach themselves, you know, I think. So it's, 
that's why I think about that. You know, it's 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 everyone's on their own journey, and you've got to kind of you've got to kind of shine the torch on the the path that they want to take and give them the torch so that they can go on that path themselves. That I think that's what a great teacher. Um, I'm not saying I'm a great teacher. I think that's what I aspire to do when I am teaching. You know, it's giving giving people the tools to 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 go on their own journey on their own. You know, yeah. 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 Bobby Shue is big on that. You know, you are your best teacher. And, and I agree. I mean, uh, I, I used to say that when I was uh, teaching martial arts, the, that it's like, I can't, you know, you, you're not going to learn anything from me. Um, you're going to learn it yourself. You know, I yeah. can just give you the information. I can, I can point you in a direction. I can give you guidance based on my experiences, but ultimately whether you get this or not is up to you. Yeah. You know, so uh, and, you know, you got to figure out your own way of taking that information and incorporate it into, you know, your practices. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there, there's a, a great benefit that comes from standardization and from creating uh, methodology and things like that. It, you know, it, it has its place, but I think sometimes we just get so locked into this is the one way. And yeah, I agree. the the individual nature of, of the, of the human mind, you know, you can't, you can't get away from that, that everybody is going to learn differently and everybody's going to come with their own sets of, of, uh, pre-wired skills and pre-wired, uh, you know, difficulties. So how do we, how do we take what someone has that's, that's really on track and keep it moving forward? And how do we, you know, navigate around the stuff that, that needs a little bit of help? Yeah. I mean, let, let's 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 just think about what we do we play music we play i think that's a really important word even if you're doing a concerto you're playing a concerto it's play play what does that connotate you know the con the con concoctions of that are play play is fun you yeah. know so even if you're playing this hardcore rachmaninoff piano concerto you're still playing yeah. you know it's 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 only music you know yeah. it's not yeah. life or death everything's going to be all right you know some people yeah. get really really serious you know in all idioms of music it's like super serious which is you know it's got it's got its place but we're still playing you know so th there's got to be a kind of for me that just just you know the image of that for me is is joy you know yeah. um no matter what it is we're playing and yeah it's serious at times and you know if you're if you're in a session and you know you've got you've you know there's 80 piece orchestra there and you've you know don't fuck up you know, yeah. don't split a note or else it's going yeah. to cost, it's going to cost that time. And that's, yeah. you know, that's pressure. And to, to be honest, that's a pressure that I love. I love that pressure. Um, and even with that, you know, I still kind of find a joy in it, you know, yeah. um, obviously there's all, there's times where things might not go and you feel a bit under pressure and all the rest of it. And that's where the, the kind of the experience comes in and the, the kind of determination side of things come in and the kind of, hopefully the kind of hours of, you know, you've got this, you know what to do, just, mm -hmm. you know, calm down and focus. Don't, somebody said a great thing to me a long time ago, don't think, concentrate, you know, don't get too in your own head, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in something you said, you, you taught martial arts. Yeah. That's awesome. What what martial arts? Uh, I did a, a variety of Chinese systems. So I was Amazing. proficient in about 25 different systems. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that was uh, thirty years of my life. So that's incredible. But see, that see, for I, I always regret not doing a martial art. I went to one Jeet Kwan Do class, mm -hmm. um, 
uh, with my my one of my other sons. So I've checked this out, man. I've got a 25 year old, uh, a 17 year old, an 18 month old, and an eight week old. <laughs> so crazy, dude. <laughs> Living that rock and roll lifestyle, I see. <laughs> um, but one thing I always regret is not getting all of them into some kind of martial art. We were me and my. One, my second to oldest son uh, went to one, like I say, Ji Kwon Do class, and it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Um, but for various life reasons and divorce and all this sort of thing, we, we couldn't get a chance to kind of just follow it up. Um, but I think I can only imagine the, the kind of um, the dedication to technique, um, mastery of kind of like... Um, physical skill um you know physical um health as well um and just dedication i mean it must be very you know i've, I've not done it myself so would you say it's kind of very much similar to music in a way or is it really different oh, or is it absolutely absolutely yeah i used to drive my students crazy uh well not all of them um because i i, I did have a number of musicians in my class and they loved it because i was always making musical analogies like, you know, you need to think about phrasing these actions, you know, oh, okay. you need to think about the dynamics, you need to think about, you know, projection, you need, you know, all these different kind of things. And they were all musical terms. So my, my musical uh, experience drove my martial arts stuff. And then my, my martial arts stuff has driven a lot of the, the stuff that I've done musically uh, because of the, of the skills that I, I had to develop. Um, I mean, the, the side story is that uh, I started doing martial arts um, seriously. Uh, I did it when I was a kid first, but I did it seriously as an adult because I was dealing with stage fright issues as, oh, a, okay. as a trumpet player. Um, and so I just needed to do something that that allowed me to to get beyond that. So, uh, and also because, uh, you know, we talked about music being fun when I was, uh, when I was doing, uh, I, I toured for a couple of years. And, you know, I was playing six nights a week and trumpet stopped being fun yeah. because it started being a job. And I mean, it's in my, uh, my, my early twenties. So, you know, now it's a kind of a different thing, but, but, uh, I kind of got burned out because I didn't have a release. So, uh, you know, I didn't have that, that, that thing of, of joy of going in my, you know, room and practicing because it's like, crap, you know, I've been practicing all day to learn these tunes for tonight's show and, and you know, and I got to rest my chop. So I, I, I didn't have that balancing. So, uh, I decided later in life when I got, you know, really to martial arts studies, it's like, I got to get music back into my life because that's going to be my balance. You know, I need to have a, a, a creative output uh, outlet that was different than what I was doing for my vocation. Um, so that, so now I've see how they both have worked together to create this kind of dynamic balance. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the mindset, the philosophy, the training, all of that stuff, it, it all relates. And it's not that those two are, it's not because those two are unique, but what I've learned is that it's the same in anything you know, to get mastery in anything, it's the same process. And it's just one, one will resonate with you easier. And so that will make more sense. And then the, the, the trick is to then extrapolate and take out, well, what is the real stuff that, 
that's the beneficial stuff and then apply that to the other things in your life. So, you know, that's, that's my approach. Re re respect to you, man. That's, that's amazing. And it's amazing that you found, um, cause you know, I've, I've had definitely stage panic attack issues in the past, you know, for various reasons. Um, and it's amazing that maybe you've had something similar, like you said, a kind of stage fright issue and you, 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 you did something really positive that was really different to deal with it and it worked it's it's really amazing that you you had the kind of foresight to kind of do that, that that's amazing you know yeah. rather than kind of go down the kind of maybe the therapy route that some people go down and maybe that helps some people um yeah that's 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 amazing that you did something that was so different physical exercise i guess that's good for the head you know that that's brilliant that you you thought to do that well yeah. I don't know if it was so brilliant. I, I, I think it was just, I just, I, I was like, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> let's, let's, let's try something different. <laughs> and that's kind of the story of my life. You know, sometimes I just like, hey, what the hell? Let's, let's, let's do this and see what happens. I mean, even like this podcast, you know, it's like, I've learned so much through the process of this that I never would have thought that I would learn. And I started it for one reason and it kind of morphed into something else. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well now... I guess it, this is, this is age, old age showing up, uh, that, you know, looking back then at my life, I can kind of start to see the the patterns and go, okay. Yeah. So I don't know where this is going to end up, but I can see how this is starting to show some of the same, uh, aspects that, that some of my other career <laughs> choices have made. And it's like, okay, there's, there's some lessons here. So let's, let's say open and receptive to it. But, uh, yeah, the, like stage stage fright seems to be a big thing, and, and particularly, I don't want to say uh, stage fright. For instance, but you you said about as terms of anxiety, yeah, and and uh, performance anxiety. I mean, the fact that you have four kids means that you don't have that much performance anxiety. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but uh, I think that particularly, like when you are a lead player. Because I mean, if you're a jazz player, you can kind of get away with stuff, you know. If you if, yeah, you, yeah, if yeah. you crack if you crack a note, then you know it's a, a stylistic man, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> or, or do uh, was it was it uh, Dizzy that that said like you know if you play there's no so no such thing as a wrong note, you know, and you know, if you if, if you if you play something you didn't mean to play, just play it twice, and people will, <laughs> people like you meant to do it. Um, but when you're a lead player, I mean, particularly when you're, I mean, you've just got to you know nail nail a passage or something like that um there is a certain level of anxiety that has to come into that uh and i think it has to be a healthy anxiety um you know you, you've got to you, you got to stay on your game you have to have that you know like you know kind of be on the edge but not be so far over that it that it uh hinders your ability to do it so mm -hmm. like um when you're when you're approaching something, if you run a session or you're doing a live gig and, you, and you're looking at this and like, who the hell wrote this shit? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, like, what do you do to get your, yourself in the right mindset to, to just be able to, to go out and, and do what you know that you can do? Um, I think, um, I think from a studio point of view, um, think the thing that I like to try and do is, you know, make make every make every other kind of piece of the jigsaw fit and be easy so get there early you know don't don't run into the session five minutes before 10 a.m and be all flustered and get the trump out and drop the mutes and be all panicked and then you know you can't 
you can't uh, re- real realistically expect to play well if you're under that pre- time pressure. Right. So if I've got you know if I've got a 10 a.m. session, I want to get there about nine. Um, get sat on the seat. You know, if I'm playing the the lead chair on that session, I'll you know have a quick look through the music. Um, do a, a bit of a gentle bit of playing, bit of a warm up, um, and then leave it. Go and have a coffee, um, maybe have some breakfast if there's time, um, and then be sitting ready to do the session ten min- you know ten minutes before the session starts, and just be calm, you know, and just be kind of focused on the job that you've got to do. So, from a mental, for, for me, from a mental point of view, if I can get all those, you know, it doesn't always work out. You know, life can be chaotic sometimes. You know, cars might be stuck in traffic. You know, trains might be delayed. You might be a bit late, but if you're aiming to get there an hour early, if you're half an hour late, you're still half an hour early. You know? Right. Um, somebody said a great thing to me. There's no such thing as there's no such thing as on time. There's only no, sorry, there's no such thing as early. There's on time or late. You know. Um yeah. so it doesn't matter how early you are, the early you can get to I think a session situation that the better, you know. Um and I've definitely been guilty of in the past of kind of trying to cram too many things and you know, uh, turning up because I've done it. I've, I've ran into a session five minutes before it starts and been under real pressure and just felt terrible. And you have that, that's when you have to really pull stuff out of the bag, you know, and I've been lucky and I've got away with it, uh, but it's not felt very good. Um, so it's great getting somewhere early, like I say, getting warmed up, getting set up, being calm, drinking some water um, and just focusing on the, 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 the thing at hand playing the trumpet playing the, playing the dots you know um if it's on a gig similar similar you know it's obviously a bit more relaxed on a on a gig um but um as far as kind of like reading the stuff I'll, I'll definitely flick through and if there's something really technically difficult I'll I'll play through it maybe very slowly a couple of times um because I think it's it's I've, I've discovered for me rather than trying to play something really naughty and technically try and hammer it up to speed and get it wrong 10 times just play it through twice slowly correctly and then when it's up to speed it's usually fine you know mm-hmm. um and if there's anything rangy in it you know it is what it is i'm i'm lucky that i have that kind of ability to play those notes so it's not something that i worry about anymore um you know if it goes very rarely you're going to get asked to play above a double c um but as long as it's no higher than that, I'm usually all right. Um, <laughs> there was there was one session I did actually, which was a, a kind of a it, it was nice because it worked out. <laughs> um, it was a it was a session with the Metropole Orchestra, um, and Vince Mendoza was conducting, and there was mm-hmm. a, a, a there was the line at the end of it was um, Lullaby of Birdland, and the, the, there was the last phrase went da so it was a c sharp d and uh we played it and he said will that will that go up the octave and i said give it a go i'd never i'd never played a d in my life ever you know um but it was like okay give it a go so i was like okay well let's just do it as a drop in on your own and the whole orchestra were there uh the whole brass section the whole rhythm section so everyone just kind of like (laughs) 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 so i had a room full of like however many people 60 people turned around to kind of watch me do this overdub and it works it worked out oh great 
<laughs> yeah, leave, leave it to Vince to do that. I, I went to college with Vince. So. Did you really? Oh, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, when he was doing his undergrad. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he he was writing some some amazing stuff back then. Oh, man. He's he's such a genius, man. I, I love that guy. He's just amazing. Yeah, I got to get Vince on the show because I haven't talked to him. I haven't talked to him since the early 80s. So uh, right? Yeah. Because he, uh, he was a trumpet player, right? Yeah, he was, a, he was a trumpet player. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, his, his, yeah. That arrangement, I don't know if you've heard it. There's a Gregory Porter arrangement that he did of Smile. Mm hmm. Have you, I don't know if you've heard that. If, if you haven't heard it, check it out. It's just incredible. It's just amazing. And there's this, just this heartbreaking key change that he does that doesn't, you know, one of those that doesn't sound like it is a key change in a way. It's just like, yeah. it just sounds like it's just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Vince, <laughs> Vince is, he's, he is so talented. I, I'm just, I, I, every time I listen to something that, that he's done, I'm just blown away and just so happy for him that, that he's, uh, he's doing what he's doing. Cause you know, the, the and you know, I love the Metropole to begin with, but uh, the, the stuff that he's done with them is great. Well, you know, actually let, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a two part question here. Um, talking about those kind of gigs. Um, what has been, everybody's had one of these, I think. Uh, what's been your shit the pants gig? You know, the one where, where you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this gig. I'm, I'm so, you know, freaked out by this, you know, kind of like, you know, you, 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 you didn't, you, you're, you're, get, you're getting yourself so kind of worked up because maybe it's a, the biggest stage you've ever played on or the artist that you've always admired that you're, you know, afraid that you're just going to, you know, make a fool of yourself in front of, but, but what's been, what's been the, the one gig that, that you like really were, were stressing about doing and, and then how did it turn out for you in the long run? Great, great question. Um, one, I mean, I think there's been a lot of gigs that I've stressed, <laughs> but thought <laughs> shit, man, I'm out my depth here. <laughs> uh, but one, one that really, really springs to mind was when I was quite young, I would have been probably like, 23 24 that kind of age um and there was uh and it was a tour um of scotland um put together by a jazz promoter in scotland who uh the jazz promoter that does the edinburgh jazz festival um but they 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 kind of put this tour together with some norwegian musicians and some scottish musicians um and the the music was um just really it was difficult jazz you know um odd time signatures which i'd never to be perfectly honest i'd never really done you know I'd, I'd never really checked out playing an odd time signatures to my you know um don't know what the word is i, I should have you know but yeah. i didn't um so there was these tunes and like you know seven and four and, and changing as well and like the form the forms were difficult and the chord sequences were just super hard they would, yeah. they would have been they would have been hard enough in four um but the, the forms were just really hard and and i just i was so out my depth you know i just I, because up until that point I, I had got away with being a kind of ear player mm -hmm. um you know so i knew loads of standards um and i could play over them uh, but i hadn't i'd never really properly started checking out checking out harmony at this point mm -hmm. um so you know, I just, I didn't, I, I was just reading because I never really read chord sequences. I, I just, I just knew the tunes. Right. Um, so I, d I didn't really know how to go about reading a chord sequence. So it was like, you, you would have been as well putting up a page of Japanese in front of me and saying, do a speech with this. Yeah. You know, I just, I had, I kind of had no idea. Um, 
So we did the first sound check and, you know, the, the, the rhythm section were just all over it. You know, if you've ever been to a jam session, that there was one just a, a very quick aside. Um, I, I sat in at a jam session when I was like 18 or 19 when I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the, the Mingus big band uh, oh. were, were in town that night and the rhythm section and some of the the cat that the horn players uh, got up um, and played this tune and it was just it was just all blues right but I was this like skinny young 17 year old 18 year old kind of like guy with a trumpet like you know yeah in my home in my hometown kind of like yeah I'm gonna get up and play and they were kind of burning through all blues and there's all these great songs like, oh this is great so I, I got up to play and as soon as I started playing, the rhythm section went swirly and weird and out and just really fucked me up. I think because <laughs> they were like, I think they were just like, who, who's this? We, we yeah. haven't invited, we haven't invited them up. We're going to really screw with them. And I got completely lost, you know, and I played and played and I tried to get back in and I played a really long solo, like too uncomfortably long, you know. <laughs> yeah. it was yeah. horrible it was so horrible and then i come off stage and this guy was like hey man that was a long song <laughs> it was like when I, I don't even know who it was it was like the alto player from the mingus big band it was like that was a long solo and i was like yeah just i said something like i didn't know how to because I, I i didn't know how to stop because i didn't know where the form had gone right you know so just and, and I, I just said i didn't know how to stop and he said man just take the horn off your mouth man So anyway, we're we're doing we do this first you know rehearsal sound check on the day of the gig, playing all this really complicated music that I, I just couldn't play a lot of it, you know. Um, and it got to the the break between that and the gig, and I knew I had to go on and do this gig, and I was just like, it was the most uncomfortable I've ever felt on a stage. I think mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's probably been others that I'm forgetting, but that was definitely like that really gave me that really gave me an amazing kick up the ass that I needed, yeah. you know, because guess what after that i checked out playing an odd time signatures and i started studying harmony a bit you know and yeah, yeah but i i kind of maybe everyone needs that experience because up until that point i i kind of thought i was doing all right you know i was kind of playing these standards and you know I, i'd written the odd tune um but i was kind of maybe getting away with it a bit more than i realized and then i had that experience and i was like okay i've, I've got a go back and do some serious homework now so it was ultimately a good thing and then next the next time i did another gig with the same kind of group of musicians playing similar music it was like okay this is how it should feel this is good okay yeah <laughs> well i mean that, that's a really great uh point that i think you know first of all you do have to put yourself in situations where you're uncomfortable if you want to grow i mean if you and and the more you do that and the 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 more you stretch yourself the more potential you have for growth now the flip side of that is that if you do that too much or you're not not prepared to be in that kind of uh, testing situation then that's when it becomes very easy to quit you know because you get so frustrated and things like that so um you know so when we were talking about education um, you know, how do you, how do you coach or mentor your, your students through that process of, you know, Hey, look, if you want to be the best way to get good is to, in some ways, dive in the deep end, you know, and, and swim with the big boys and, and you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to sound like ass and you're going to, you know, you're going to feel embarrassed. Uh, but you know, you know, you'll know, then you'll know what you don't know. 
you know, so how do you get them, you know, to do that, but also keep them, you know, grounded with the, you know, the, the mental side of it, that it's part of the growth process and, you know, don't be freaked out when you can't do something. Yeah. I mean, definitely if it's, if it's jazz, jazz students, um, I definitely always say, you know, go to jam sessions, learn, learn some tunes and go to jam sessions and sit in with people. And if they call a tune that you don't know, you know, have a go, you know, um, if it's, if it's really something you can't hear, you know, go and go back and do a bit of homework, but you know, with standards, you should be able to kind of feel your way through it the first time if you don't know it, you know, because generally standards aren't that challenging, you know, harmonically, particularly a lot of them, you know, it's like, yeah, there's different substitutions and some, some standards have got some complex forms and all that, but on the whole, um, standards are, you're looking at, you know, pretty standard harmony. So if you don't know a tune, um, just listen to it especially if there's a singer there, even better. Just, you don't have to play the tune, you know, but play a solo, feel your way through it. Go and sit in at jam sessions, listen to music, man. You know, like the, the amount of people that maybe that I've, I've come across who want to play jazz, but they've not really checked out much jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, it, tend, it tends to be people from like, um, I've had lots and lots of classical trumpet players come, uh, and asked me for lessons and probably 75% say I want to work on my range, you know, which is kind of, for me, it's like one of the most boring questions I get asked, how do you play high, you know? Um, and then you get some that are, that, that want to, you know, I want to get my, you know, I want to, I want to learn jazz, mm -hmm. but you quickly discover that they've not really checked out any jazz. They've, they've maybe heard, one or two things that they've liked but it's like okay have you have you checked out louis armstrong have you checked out clifford brown have you checked out miles Davis? you know have you, you list a load of names and they, they haven't heard of half of them you know yeah. and they don't they don't listen to the music i think i think jazz especially i think all music but i think jazz jazz music especially folk music as well uh but you know music that's kind of an almost like an oral tradition it's like learning a language so if you're going to learn german you can't learn it by reading german out of a textbook you can only really truly learn it if you experience how it sounds you listen to people doing it you copy people you eventually internalize what the words are so then you can use the words and then you can start to put sentences together and then you can speak the language i think that's what you have to do with jazz it's like when a baby's learning to speak you know they, they copy you they, they, they say single words until they eventually understand the words and then they can eventually get a sentence and then eventually they're having a conversation with you and the more creative you know kids are so creative with conversation it's a shame that we kind of lose that as we get older mm -hmm. um but i think with jazz music it's exactly the same you've got uh, yes you've got to study the theory of course but i think you've got it's got to be a kind of oral thing you've got to listen internalize copy you've got a copy and then come up with your own thing eventually but if if you don't do that, you're you're not really gonna be able to play the music kind of authentically. I think you know. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean that that's one of the things. Yeah. You know, we were talking earlier about how you know I, I kind of use music in my martial arts teaching and martial arts in my music and stuff like that. That um, I use that analogy a lot in pretty much everything I I do is that you know kids when they learn you know whether it's learning to walk or learning to speak. Um, but especially speech because it relates to music so well is they don't 
you know, you don't teach a kid how to speak by teaching them grammar and syntax. You don't teach them how to, to, uh, structure a sentence, you know, do the, the diagrams and all that, that sort of stuff. And okay, here's your adverb, here's your adjective. Oh, you don't do yeah. that. I'll tell you, you what, because if, if you did do that, you'd get a whole generation of kids that wouldn't speak. Exactly. But that's what we do with music. You know, it's, yeah. you know, we want to teach, we want to teach the theory first and then, and then hope someday that they'll be able to be expressive. And I'm a firm believer uh, it, like I said, this is what I used to do with my martial arts students is that I would rather have you do something with feeling and intention, you know, like for performances and stuff that I would, I want you to do, I would rather have you do it wrong, but convincingly wrong than to try to be so technically accurate that it has no feeling because you can teach technique, but you can't teach feeling. And so if you work on your feeling first, if you, if you learn what you want to feel and you and you feel comfortable expressing what you want to feel then the technique is simply a way of m helping you to express it clearly and consistently yes but, absolutely but if you've got great technique and you've got shit to say then you're just going to be really clear at expressing complete bullshit so get the feeling <laughs> right yeah yeah absolutely i couldn't agree with all of that more absolutely yeah. So, you know, well, speaking of, uh, you know, like uh, listening, um, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, Herb Alpert, uh, you talked about, uh, you know, Maynard, uh, Winton. Um, if you had to point to like one person that was uh, like most influential in bringing together your concept of sound and uh, approach to the horn and, and, and playing um, and helped you best to become Ryan. Um, who, who would that person be? Oh man, that, that's a really hard question. Um, if I was really, really pushed to pick one person, because um, probably in my initial years, when I, when I heard Winton, um, as a young kid, that really, really blew my mind, um, and I just I wanted to be that guy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, from from a from a not only from a jazz point of view, but from a classical point of view, and he he made it look to me like it was pop because I never thought you could do both, you know, because I didn't really, I'd never really checked out any classical playing. I just thought it was this other thing over right. there, you know, the classical mm -hmm. music, and he brought it here, and he was doing both. Um, so I think from an initial young adult point of view, I would have to say Winton was the biggest influence on me. You know, as having checked out everyone else um, and having still check, checking out everyone all the time, um, that he was the guy. But I think because he was so relatable age-wise, yeah. you know, um, he, he really, and, and, and also he was so amazing at everything. You know, his classical albums were unbelievable. You know, that Carnival album where he's playing all the Arbin stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just crazy playing, you know, um, and plus, you know, the jazz messenger stuff that he did mm -hmm. and then he did, you know, and then he brought out that record. Um, well, the, 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 the first record he brought out, I loved, you know, Winton, it was just called Winton Marsalis, right. mm -hmm. the record with Ron Carter and Tony Williams and, uh, uh, Herbie's on it as well, isn't he? Um, and plus his rhythm section, I think Kenny Kirkland might be on it. Um, anyway, that that record, and then he brought out like the, the next record after that. I think I heard was like Black Codes from the Underground, mm -hmm. uh, which was just like an um, unbelievable record. So I think 
the 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 combination of um him uh, playing the classical stuff and playing the jazz stuff um i think probably had the most profound um influence on on my overall kind of concept of mm-hmm. uh, music oh do you look at this i've just been handed a gin and tonic from my fiance how lovely is that oh that's lovely pinch <laughs> one over for me it's too early but i'll have one anyway i had one last night so yeah i, I was being profound now she's now she's taking the piss out of me but that's okay <laughs> She's amazing. Do you know what? She's amazing. She's an amazing classical viola player. Ah. Um, she's, yeah, she's absolutely like virtuoso level amazing. So yeah, I, I've got a lot to learn being around her. She's open. She's opened my eyes and ears to a lot of um, amazing classical music, chamber music stuff, and all that. Great, great. We'll we'll get her on the podcast next. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think from from you know just. Um, it's a it's quite a difficult question to answer, but that that's the answer. If I was to pick one guy that had the most profound influence on me, kind of growing up, it would definitely be Winton because he's was and probably still is arguably the greatest trumpet player on the planet. You know, he's he's unbelievable. You know, yeah, yeah, and well, a, and, a, and a dead nice guy. You know, I've I've been lucky enough to meet him and hang out and play with him a couple of times, and he's just lovely as well. You know. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. You got you got to get him in your podcast, man. Uh, he's on my list. He's on my <laughs> list. I've just been, uh, I don't know. I've been, I, 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 I'm not afraid of, of, of talking to many people or, or reaching out to people, but I don't know. There's just something about Winton that, that, uh, you know, I just got to do it. You know, the yeah. first person and the person that, 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 that scared the hell out of me about approaching, uh, and I just said, uh, screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. It, because it was a person who's, who to me, was that kind of defining like i can point to that and say this is the person that kind of put everything together for me and that's jerry hay and you know i you know i reached out to jerry and he he was the nicest guy and you know yeah, right. super super sweet guy you know and you know so yeah i got to get waiting on the get, get yeah, man. On that, i was, so. I, was lo- I, I was very lucky i got to do one gig with jerry um where he was it was with quincy jones and jerry was kind of there helping quincy and yeah. doing a mm-hmm. bit conducting all that and he was yeah just like you say he's the nicest he's the most kind of unassuming nicest guy yeah. you'll ever meet he's amazing and you know for for such a kind of giant you know it's like we've all heard jerry hay without knowing we've heard jerry hay you know it's like yeah. it's unbelievable um for for the icon that he is um yeah he's just this nicest nicest man ever yeah well, you know, and it gets back to what we, we, you know, what we were talking about at the very beginning is that, you know, he just loves the trumpet. He loves music, you know, and he loves wine. But, you know, it, it's it, it's the thing that, that, you know, you get him talking about trumpet. Yeah. You know, he just wants, he, he enjoys it. You know, it's been such a part of his life. So um, that's you know cool. What I, do, you know what I, do you know what I love? I, I love that um, I still feel 18 when I'm playing the trumpet. You know, yeah. I, I still feel like a kid and I still feel like I've got, we've all got so much to learn and so many places to go. But like, I, I really feel like a beginner, you know, yeah. still. And, yeah. and I kind of, I kind of love that feeling because I just, I can't wait to just get some other shit together. You know, I, I do genuinely love it. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, no, no, I feel you, man. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'll be 60 here in a few weeks and, um, you know, it's like I, I, when I'm on the gig, you know, I feel so full of energy. I feel like I'm, you know, still 20 years old until after the gig and I'm packing up and my back is hurting and my feet are hurting. <laughs> Tell you what, you don't look, you don't look 60, man. You don't look anywhere near it. 
Uh, I look 70, I know. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a gin and tonic talking. Um, all right. Well, we've got a few segments we got to get through here. Okay. Uh, and uh, the first one is our newest segment, and it's brought to us by our mutual friend, Mr. Michael Barkley. This is uh, Barkley uh, Microphone's Sound Off, and in the Sound Off section, we're going to uh, actually kind of build off what we were just talking about a little bit. I want to talk about your approach to sound, uh, and particularly um, the kind of advice that you, that you would want to give uh, someone who's looking to uh, either develop or improve their own sound i mean i think um i think consistency of sound is really important i think um i i don't think people should worry or concentrate too much on range until they've got a good consistency of sound going on you know throughout the range that they already have you know so i think if you've got like an amazing consistency of sound up to a top c you know you're going to be really employable you know so you know Consistency of sound, accuracy, um, and good time—you know—are the things that I would want to, I would want people to be concentrating on if they're just, you know, especially especially if you want to be like a commercial studio musician, you know, um, you've got you've got to play in time, and you've got to play in tune, and you've got to play with a good sound. So they're the things that you really need to work on, you know, and and accuracy, of course. Um, so yeah, just I think don't ever, don't ever um, sacrifice sound for range i think would be some quite good advice because i think people want to maybe walk a bit before they can run sometimes with playing high you know and it's it's not it's not quite as important as people maybe think it is to be a commercial trumpet player um obviously we you, you need to have a kind of good working range certainly up to top g for sure um but if you don't if you've got an amazing working range up to like a really solid top c top d uh but it's always accurate it's always got a great sound like I say, you're really employable, you know. Um, so I don't know if that answered the. Qu I don't yeah. know if that was the question you asked, but that's yeah. well, no, that, that, that some somehow that's where I ended up. Okay, well, that's where you ended up. So that's that's where we ended up. <laughs> you're 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 driving the bus on this one, buddy. Uh, okay, uh, so our next segment. The next segment is uh, something that, that uh, all trumpet players love. Uh, this is our geared up segment, and this is where we talk about. The kind of gear you use, and and in particular, what I you know, my approach to this is again making it a little more informational because anybody can look up and see you know who you, what kind of gear you play or who you endorse, but it's what you look for in gear, particularly from the the perspective of a commercial player. Uh, so if you're giving advice to uh, someone who's looking to upgrade their gear. What are the considerations? What are the, the things that they should be looking for testing out to uh, to find the, the best gear for the kind of work that they do? Well, I think if you're if you're looking for new gear, I think the first question you should ask is, do you actually need to look for new gear? Like what what are, what are the specific problems you think you're having for you to want to go down that route uh, would be the first thing I would say. Um, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're all guilty of kind of, new shiny mouthpieces you know we all love it um and you know I, i've i've played on every mouthpiece you can imagine from like a one bach um to uh a, a maynard ferguson cup you know like and, yeah. and everything in between um and the, yeah they all do different things um i think depending on what kind of playing you're doing if you're if you're doing more commercial stuff um if you're playing some lead trumpet stuff 
I think you, you certainly don't want to be playing on something that's too big because that's not going to be efficient for what you're doing. Um, vice, uh, conversely, if you're if you're playing kind of like kind of like orchestral studio stuff or, or orchestral music or kind of more um, something on that, you know, you, you don't really want to be playing on like a high compression small mouthpiece because that because that's not going to sound right. I don't. I, I I'm a kind of a bit of a having gone through the amount of mouthpieces that I've gone through and the amount of trumpets that I've gone through, I don't think um, the mouthpiece has as big an effect on range as people might think it does. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes sometimes you can put a small mouthpiece in and you can play, suddenly you can play a, an extra fourth on your range, but you'll only last five minutes and then you'll be exhausted. You know, like play, playing on a small mouthpiece is actually a real commitment. It's difficult, you know. Um, people, I think people think it's a cheap mouthpiece. I, I think a, a one and a quarter C is a cheap mouthpiece because it's really easy to make a nice sound in that, you know? Yes. Yeah. Playing on a small, high compression mouthpiece is, is a commitment and it's difficult um, is, is what I would say about that. Um, I think if you're if you're looking for maybe a bit more edge on your sound, if you think it's, you know, maybe, maybe you want to try something a tiny bit shallower or maybe a tiny bit tighter. Um, if you want to get a bit more body to your sound, if you want to get a bit more kind of resonance to your sound, Resonance is not the word I want to use, actually. Uh, a bit more kind of, um, yeah, a bit more of a rounder kind of more classical sound. Yeah, of course, go go bigger. But I think definitely um, look, look at what you're doing and what you're on at the moment. And are you having issues, first of all? If you are having issues, what are they? Um, and like I say, um, basically, I guess, you, I guess you could draw like a kind of, as far as mouthpiece goes, you know, from big to small, they do a certain thing. And maybe you want to find something a bit more in the middle that does most of the things that you want to do. So, you know, because you don't want to kind of, you don't want to move on to something that is going to stop you playing the things that you currently play. Um, so I'd maybe, if you're if you're like a coming from a classical background and you're playing on like a really big mouthpiece, maybe maybe just try something like a three C or even a seven C because they're 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 smaller, but they're not crazy small, and mm -hmm. they might give you that they might give you that extra. I remember when I was very young, I moved from a one and a quarter C to a three C and the three C felt like a lead trumpet mouthpiece to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's crazy to think of that now because of what I play on now, but you know, it's, 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 it's all, it's all relative. It's like, yeah. you just have to figure out what you're, what, what you're looking for, you know, and, and be sensible about it, you know? And yeah. I think don't be, don't be scared to change gear as well depending mm -hmm. on what you're doing. I think people get really, again, I think especially in the classical world, don't know what it's like in America, but in, in the UK, certainly there was a real thing. You play on one thing and one thing only, and oh, yeah. you, can't, you can't mess with it because it's going to screw that, man. Like, honestly, these things are really resilient, you know? Like, I, I, I play trombone a little bit, you know? And for years I thought, oh, trombone's going to wreck my chops. And when I started playing trombone, it really did wreck my chops because I believed it would. Mm -hmm. And then many, many years later, um, a friend asked me, can you play trombone? And I was like, no. And he said, would you mind learning trombone? I'm writing this thing and I'd love you to play trombone on it. And I was like, ah, okay, I'll give it a go. I'm kind of older and, you know, like you say, not wiser, just older, yeah. um, more, more experienced. And I thought, do you know what? I didn't have any worries about it and it didn't do me any harm. And actually, if anything, it helped the trumpet playing in a way. So don't be afraid well, to change. Yeah. I mean, there, you, you look, there's, there are a lot of guys that, that double 
that are you know like you know Maynard was was you know especially in his uh, earlier stages of his career. I mean, he he would play trumpet, he would play baritone, he'd play valve trombone, you know. So uh, it didn't seem to hurt him. So. No. You know, but you know, then again, um, but are you kind of a middle of the road equipment guy or are you, um, like I know a lot of guys, especially commercial, but yeah, you know, do a lot of commercial playing. Um, you know, it's like the standard gear is kind of like more, you know, not as extreme on the, the high compression side or extreme on the, the big side, just kind of like, you know, kind of right there where you, you have all of the, as much of the advantages of the com high compression piece as well as kind of having the fullness of a, of a larger piece. Yeah. I mean, I've got to a stage now um, where it's taken me quite a long time to get here, but I, I have various mouthpieces that I play depending on what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm playing um, kind of pretty extreme lead trumpet parts, um, I, I play on a Maynard Ferguson cup, um, mm -hmm. a Warburton um, mm -hmm. and uh when I'm playing like more standard lead trumpet stuff, that's that it's probably not going to be a necessarily go much above a G or an A. Uh, I play on a, a Wayne Bergeron GR mm -hmm. um, studio model, um, and when I'm playing more kind of like kind of orchestrally, kind of I'm not brilliant at it, but sometimes I get to do it. Um, I I play a three C, mm -hmm. um, so I kind of there's. You know, I think I, I've I've learned over the years how to play on each mouthpiece without it feeling particularly different on on either mouthpiece, and what the, each mouthpiece gives me the the thing that I need for for what I'm trying to do. Um, I guess most of the time I play on. I, I, I mean, this changes every now and again. Um, I'll go through a kind of phase of going right. I want to try something different, but at the moment, for the last little while, I've been playing on the 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 MF, which I believe is a copy of the Giardinelli One. Mm -hmm. um mouthpiece that you used to play on i've got a few different versions of that style mm -hmm. of mouthpiece um but i guess at the moment i'm playing most things on that because mm -hmm. i think if you if you can make a good sound on a small mouthpiece um it's it's going to be quite efficient for a lot of things uh, yeah. it's not right it's not right for everything but it's it's definitely much i, I find it harder going small than going big so mm -hmm. i like to play on small gear and then if i need to go bigger i, I find that quite easy uh, yeah, but going the other going the other way around, I find it a little bit challenging. So, yeah, yeah, well, makes makes sense, makes sense. All right, uh, well, we've got one more segment to get through, and this is brought to us by our good friends at Robinson's Remedies. Uh, some rapid relief for your chops with the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round series of questions all over the place, uh, and we're going to find out uh, how many gin and tonics that Ryan actually had during the course of this interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're, you're really, really making me jealous. I have to tell you. So, um, yeah, I, I have a, I have a, a good friend who's from London and, uh, actually she and her husband both are from London. And, uh, uh, we, we had many conversations about, uh, gin and tonics and, uh, we've shared our, shared our particular recipes. So, uh, there's a science to a good G and T there's a science to it. The, the right balance. Um, so anyway, here we go. We're going to have a series of questions here. Uh, get to know a little bit more about Ryan uh, by picking his brain on these bizarre questions. So let's start the first one. Ryan, who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player? Biggest influence on my life that's not a trumpet player. Do you know what? It would be my fiance. Mm. Because she's, the... super, she's, she, she's super cool and she's my best friend and she's 
just made my life better. And she talks sense when I don't. <laughs> she made your life better because she just brought you the GNT. Is that what you're saying? Well, also that she's really good at doing that as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good enough. All right. Uh, what's your favorite book? My favorite book. Um, there's a really um, amazing book um, by a Scottish author called Lewis Grassic Gibbon uh, called Sunset Song, uh, which is really quite amazing. It's a really earthy book. It's set during the First World War in kind of rural Scotland. And it's, it's just, it's, it's about the land and how the land changes through the seasons and how that kind of relates to how a human changes through their life. It's, it's a really profound book. It's a be- beautiful book. I love wow. that book. That sounds really interesting. I have to check that one out. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? <laughs> um, the worst movie I've ever seen. Do you know what? <laughs> There's a movie. What the hell is it called? It's called. Um, oh, I'm gonna have to. I'm go- Oh God. I'm gonna have to look the movie up because it is truly terrible. Um, you might know it's about it's about a a doll. Uh, called Brahms, um, and uh, it's kind of like comes to life. It's it's supposed to be like a horror movie, but it's the most unscary, crap, terrible uh, plot horror movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, I can't remember what it's called though. I'm sorry, um, but it's truly awful. It, it it's worse than the Chucky, one of those Chucky movies. The oh yeah yeah yeah, it's worse. Yeah, it's oh. it's, it's, it's awful. Oh okay. Bad bad acting, bad plot, bad story. It's hilariously bad, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, if you were not a trumpet player, what would you want to be? If I was not a trumpet player, uh, I initially, before I wanted to become a trumpet player, I wanted to be a paramedic. So I might be something in that field. Okay. Maybe maybe something medicine, maybe something paramedic-y, that kind of mm-hmm. neck of the woods. Okay. Um, now this, this could be a hard one for you to answer. What's your favorite drink? Uh, my favorite drink, um, I, I'm very, very versatile with my mm-hmm. drinks, um, but there's nothing beats um, an amazing pint of Guinness in Ireland, in my hometown. Uh, so I was born in Derry in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. um, and there's some great pubs there. So uh, an amazing pint of Guinness uh, in Ireland, you just uh, that that's my hands down favorite drink. You know, I was I was in Ireland a few years ago in... I have to say, I wasn't, th- yeah, I, I went to the Guinness factory and everything. I love the tour. I love the history of the tour. I'm still not a great Guinness, big Guinness fan. That's okay. I mean, not- it's, not, it's, not, it's not to everyone's taste, I think. You know, it's like, it's a very specific thing. No, um, no. I guess. Whiskey. That's a different, that's a different story. That's a different story. Well, whiskey would be my, my close second. Uh-huh. Okay. Sure. All right. <laughs> give me, give me a nice uh, single pot still. Uh, and I am, I am straight. I had a great one, uh, Teelings. Um, oh yeah. Uh-huh. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. oh, that was, that was a wonderful experience. Have you ever, uh, have you ever had Laphroaig? Yes, I have. Uh, that, that's probably my favorite whiskey would be Laphroaig. Okay. okay. Well, when we, uh, when we meet in, in person, we will, we will share, uh, a Laphroaig, a Teelings and a Guinness and a gin and tonic <laughs> and, um, you can be a paramedic and wheel me out. Uh, all right. Um, you can have a dinner party and invite any 
three living people, any three people in the world to this dinner party, who would you want to invite? Wow. Um, there's a, there's a comedian or, or comedic actor over here. Um, and kind of great intellect. Uh, and I think he's just a really interesting guy, a guy called Stephen Fry. Oh, I love Stephen Fry. I think, yeah, I, th- I think he would be just brilliant to have at a dinner party because I think he would just be, I think everyone would just be looking at him just saying, keep talking. Yeah. It's amazing, you know. Um, so he, definitely Stephen Fry. Um, all living, did you say? It, all living. All living. Okay, so definitely Stephen Fry. Um, I think it would be, really interesting um to team up um Stephen Fry with uh I think Hamish Stewart um okay. fantastic singer and bass player from the average white band mm-hmm. who very lucky to know um but I've never had a dinner party with him um and he's just he's just a dead dead cool dead nice guy um and uh that's a tricky one a third person Daniel Barenboim, because he's a, he's a he's a really interesting guy. So that Daniel Barenboim, he's a classical uh, virtuoso pianist. He used to be married to Jacqueline Dupre back in okay. the day, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's the conductor of the Staatskapelle um, in Germany. And uh, he's just had an amazing. He, he's he's Israeli, um, and he um, lives in Germany, and he set up this kind of. Um, the Eastern Divan Orchestra, which is kind of like bringing, you know, Palestinians and Israelis and, you know, lots of other cultures together and making that kind of peace thing. I think he's a really interesting, um, uncompromising kind of character. So I think that might be quite a, an interesting group of people to have sitting around chatting about the world. Cool. All right. So uh, you got three additional chairs at your table. Now you can invite three people from history. Any three people that are no longer with us. Okay. I think it would be really cool to have Louis Armstrong there. Yeah, well, of course. You know, I think he'd be just, yeah, just, he just seemed like the most kind of like fun, alive trumpet player, you know? He's like the Mm -hmm. perfect trumpet player, you know? Um, I think uh, it'd be interesting to have Mozart there. Mm-hmm. So I think he could be the kind of the, the craziness um, and um, probably Neil Armstrong, okay. you know, someone that's someone that stood on the moon and looked at the earth. Yeah. You know, there's, o- there's only a handful of people in the history have done that. You know, yeah. I can't imagine how life altering that must be. Yeah. Man, that you—you you actually thought that through, and, and you know, and I, I like that you—you're—you're you're feeling checking all the boxes. So the yeah, the Armstrong brothers, Louis and Neil, <laughs> <laughs> distant relatives. Um, all right, uh, next question: lacquer plated or raw? Plated. Okay. Plated. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite quote? Um, well, this, this is where the mind goes blank and you can never remember all your nice quotes. Do you know what? I, lo- I love um, Oscar Wilde. You know, I think he, he's just such a great writer. And he, he said something amazing, which I think is almost like a kind of, it's like a really, it's, it's quite profound and beautiful. It's, it's something like every, um, every saint has a past. 
and every sinner has a future. Uh, I, I love that. that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right. Uh, what's your greatest fear? Oh, that's easy. Anything happening to my children. Okay. That's, that's absolutely my greatest fear. Anything bad happening to them. Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? <laughs> um, a superpower. I guess to fly, that would be pretty cool. Okay. Cause, Cause I'm scared of flying. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm scared of planes. So if I could fly myself, you know, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one way of doing it. All right. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you find to be the most overrated? Oh, playing high, high notes for okay. sure. All right. Uh, what and, aspect, and, you know, and I'm, I'm saying that as a lead trumpet player, you know, but people concentrate on it too much, you know? Right. And, and yeah, and I think that's an important thing to, you know, because there's certainly been a lot of uh, discussion, uh, and I use that word uh, loosely, um, on the internet about uh, high notes and, and things like that. And yeah, you know, it's it's necessary. Uh, and it's, especially if you want to be a commercial player, like you said, you, you, you do have to have, there's, there's certain requirements of what you're, you know, what you need to do, but, uh, it's not to be all end all, but it certainly helps if if you, if you have them, you know, as part of, I would say as part of a balanced diet of trumpet playing. For sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Uh, good time. I think is really underrated. I think people really neglect that. Yeah. Okay. Um, you have the ability to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? One piece of advice. Um, I think I would, it's, it's partly music related, but I think I would tell myself to, to get savvy with technology earlier, you know, cause I've, I've come to it so late, man. You know, like I've I've only in the last couple of years started being able to use things like pro uh, not Pro Tools um Logic. I've got mm-hmm. Pro Tools and I don't quite know how to work that yet, but I'm I'm quite good at Logic now and I do a lot of home recordings for people. Uh, but I, I wish I was really good at it and I wish I'd started it earlier. So I'm still I'm I'm at the beginning. Of, I feel like I'm at the beginning of that journey, uh, mm-hmm. and I wish I'd I wish I'd got on that ladder twenty years ago. You know. Yeah, yeah, very true. I mean. You really, it's really hard to be, uh, especially in terms of doing session work. It's hard to do that if you don't understand the technology these days, because, you know, COVID yeah. proved that to us, you know, the people who embrace the technology were the ones that were still working. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, well, you're back there and you're giving your younger self one additional piece of advice, but this is about advice about life. What would it be? Hmm. I guess um, that's a really hard question. That's a really hard question um, because again, there's <laughs> there's so much I've done wrong in my life. There's so many things I would say. I think <laughs> you know. Um, I guess if it was if it was, um, I guess I'd probably give myself a bit of a break. You know, like don't be don't be so hard on your, you know, just in general, just let up on yourself a little bit. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. just give yourself a little break every now and again. Okay. Well, that's good. All right. Final question for you, Ryan, what do you want your legacy to be? 
Um, I would love my legacy to be um, people people remembering me as being a nice person um, and a good guy um, and a good a good family man and someone who was a really good trumpet player and who was just nice. I just want, want to, I'd love to be remembered fondly, you know. Um, so I, I guess that it would be that good good person, good father, um, who happened to be a whatever trumpet player I end up being, you know. Um, hope, hopefully that'll be good as well. But yeah, just certainly I'd, I'd rather have people remember fondly than going, thank God that guy's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think that will be the case, my friend, because I, I, I have uh, enjoyed our time together because, uh, I mean, you are a great guy. You're, you're a great hang. So, uh, it's lovely. It's lovely to, to finally talk to you because like I say, I've been checking out what you've been doing. You're doing a brilliant thing. So thank you for doing it first of all. Um, and hopefully we will actually get to meet in person sometime. You never know. Um, when all this shit's over, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I when I when I started the podcast, the original idea was this is going to be you know live interviews, like you know actually sitting down at a bar somewhere, uh, oh, and cool. uh, and then you know COVID completely shit the bed for us. Um, but uh, but the advantage of it is, is that that I do get a chance to talk to people all over the world now, yeah, so that's, that's a good thing. But I'll tell you what, it, yeah. Sorry. You know, but, but, you know, now that things are starting to open up, my, my hopes are that I will be able to balance out the, the virtual with the real. And, and I would love to get a UK based hang and, you know, maybe yeah. fly over there and, uh, and get you and, and, uh, some of the other, some of the yeah, other man. guys out there. And we're just, you'd be, you'd be very welcome with open arms. Well, you know, the one the, the amazing thing about the London trumpet scene, uh, which I'm, I, I'm very, very lucky to be a very small part of. And I came to it late in my life because the only the only reason I really moved was because I met my partner um, mm -hmm. about 10 years ago. You know, musicians don't move for a gig. They move for a woman, you know, right? Exactly. Uh, uh, but I'm very lucky that I've been accepted onto the scene over the last decade, you know. And, and I have to say that the scene is lovely. It's just full of amazingly lovely people. I could, I could name all of them, but I'll forget someone and offend someone. But honestly... <laughs> The, the the scene is so beautiful and the standard is so high. Uh, you can't you can't stop being on your game. You've got to be on your game. You've got to keep pushing. Uh, but it's it's a health. It's I don't even know if it's a competitiveness. It's just it's just really positive in every way. I can't I can't really say a bad word about the scene over here. Uh, yeah. As far as trumpet playing goes, it's just it's a real community. Um, and a, like I say, I'm incredibly lucky to be a part of it. But we you're very welcome. Come and you know come and hang for sure. Well, I will certainly do that. I will take you up on that, my friend. So, uh, so thank you so much again for for joining uh, me today and and hanging with me and and sharing a a, a G and T while I had to suffer through my coffee. Uh, but uh, next time we'll turn the tables. So, uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, all right, and uh, you know, just if if you if you're not hip to the work that Ryan's doing, make sure that you uh, follow him on social media. Uh, he's, uh, he's got some, some great stuff. I was just listening to some tracks last night and I'm like, holy cow. I, I don't know whether I want to shake his hand or punch him in the face, but, <laughs> but, very, uh, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. But, but some great stuff. And just, you know, and if, if you are, if you are, uh, or find yourself in uh, London, make sure uh, you, you check him out. Any of his live gigs, uh, that, that gig at, at Ronnie Scott had to be fantastic. I mean, that's, yeah, it was great. Yeah.
yeah so no, anyway. listen, man th- thank you so much for having me it's a real 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 privilege for me to be here so fat really genuinely thank you uh, well, well, thank you. And thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of the Trump Gurus Hang and make sure that you uh, support our sponsors and, uh, you know, share, share the love, share the show with somebody and uh, that you think will we'll enjoy the madness that is the Trump Gurus Hang. So as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We're out.